Hey, what's up, everybody? Today's show is brought to you by our oldest and dearest sponsor, and that is Lorenzotti.coffee, providing you with premium Italian coffee and coffee brewing supplies delivered right to your door. And you can get 10% off your order of Lorenzotti coffee if you go to Lorenzotti.coffee and use my promo code FICTION so they know that I sent you. That's Lorenzotti, L-O-R-E as in Edward, N is in Nancy, Z as in Zebra, O-T-T-I dot coffee, promo code FICTION for premium Italian coffee, the kind that you can't normally get here in the United States. They will get that to you. Free shipping if you order at least two tins. I never do a show without it. I never start a day without it. Lorenzotti.coffee, promo code FICTION. All right, let's start the show. Anyone claiming that America's economy is in decline is peddling fiction. I've abandoned free market principles to save the free market system. But we have to pass the bill so that you can uh, find out what is in it. Raising the debt ceiling does not increase our debt. It does not somehow promote profligacy. I know words. I have the best words. Nobody knows the system better than me, which is why I alone can fix it. What's up, everybody? Welcome back. This is the Peddling Fiction Podcast, and I am your host, the voice and soul of so-called fiction, broadcasting once again, deep behind enemy lines in the Windy City, Johnny the Gentile Profita. It is Labor Day, Monday night Labor Day, and I am laboring for you fine people on Labor Day, the day that organized labor gave us off of work, allegedly. A couple other things they're responsible for, according to today's politicians, and that's the weekend and higher wages and creating the middle class, and I'm going to debunk all of that in today's episode, and we're doing the first ever Ask Me Anything Peddling Fiction podcast. I posed the question to our private Facebook group, and so I'm going to go through some of those and give you my answers to your questions. And if you're not in the private Facebook group, I still don't know what you're waiting for. You could have had some input on the direction of today's show. And if you had a pressing question for me, you might have gotten it answered. So if you're not already, go get onto Facebook, find the private Facebook group, ask to join. And the next time we do one of these, you can be a little more involved. So that's um, pretty much what I got in store for today. It is a holiday, a federal holiday. So I don't know uh, how many of you were working and how many of you had the day off, but I wanted to uh, put you guys to work a little bit, get you a little more involved with the show and sort of lighten the load up on me. I, I wanted to take a break from all of the coronavirus stuff and the, and the riots and the election and just sort of see what was on your minds and, and maybe I could address those questions. So anyway, I hope you all had a nice weekend. Mine didn't go quite as planned. I know I had a number of things lined up for the long weekend, and they all pretty much fell through. I didn't go to McHenry. I didn't get out on the boat. I ended up doing a lot of boring adult stuff around the house, <laughs> you know, uh, getting stuff cleaned up, getting um, some things repaired, taken care of, you know, being a typical homeowner. I was behind on a lot of work that I was trying to get done, so I, I did a lot of that. I was able to get out a little bit and then also take care of a lot of projects and things that I had on the side that I needed to get done. So I guess it wasn't all bad, but not ideal. Of course, I had plenty of time to peruse the, the Twitters and the interwebs, and oh boy, is Twitter accessible, especially on these holidays, the federal holidays, when... Every politician likes to perpetuate lies and propaganda. That just drives me batshit crazy. I actually did, I think, like an entire episode on Labor Day this time last year. But that was uh, a while ago, and 
we have a lot of new listeners now. And, you know, if you go on to Twitter and you see the any politician who's active today, like especially on the left, most of the Labor Day propaganda comes from the left because the, the Democrats and especially the, the really far left tend to be very pro-labor pro-worker, anti-entrepreneur, and they, they really have no concept of what creates wealth. And when you have a fundamental misunderstanding of something of that magnitude, where everything, our entire standard of living stems from wealth creation, and when you don't understand how wealth is created, something that fundamental, it's really going to throw off your, like, your entire worldview. An organized labor, a labor union in the, in the private sector is not necessarily a bad thing. I don't particularly care for them because I think that they tend to help the least productive workers at the expense of the most productive and most valuable. But there's no doubt that it's an important function in the free market. If we were to have true free market capitalism, you would have organized labor. You would have labor unions. There's there's no doubt about that. And you know, workers should be able to, you know, band together to you know, to demand higher wages or a better work environment or something like that. That that's absolutely an important aspect of freedom. However, employers also need to be able to fire said workers for any reason at the drop of a dime. The way it works now is the government steps in and, and passes all these rules and regulations on the side of labor because, let's face it, more people are workers than are the bosses, right? So they, they tend to pander to where the votes are, right? And so you end up with this unfair advantage of, of labor versus the employer, and the employer loses all of these rights that he would normally have or she would normally have simply because they decided to employ people. And all of these employees are granted special privileges and, and rights and things like that just because they're workers. And that's not the way rights work. Okay, we all should enjoy the same rights simultaneously. And nobody should lose rights or gain rights just because you decided to hire somebody or you decided to work for somebody. And the biggest perversion of a labor union is a government labor union, like government workers being in a union. We see this all over the government, and it is an incredible perversion of what organized labor is supposed to be about. You get the worst of both worlds every time you have this public-private partnership kind of thing. And when it, when it comes to these types of unions, you have the labor unions negotiating salary and benefits with politicians that they help get elected who are not on the hook to pay for all of that stuff. The taxpayers on the hook for all of these promises that politicians are making to labor unions to get themselves elected, and they're, and they're not responsible for paying. All the taxpayers are on the hook for this. So you have the, the person who has to foot the bill is not involved in any of these negotiations, and that's why it's no surprise that all of these democratically run cities with these massive labor unions, Chicago being one of them, are completely bankrupt. They've made promises that th there's no chance in hell that we could actually afford to pay for all of this stuff. The teachers unions in particular are going to bankrupt the, the city of Chicago. I've done entire episodes on that, but they get to retire, you know, at 55 with 80% of the la the average of the last three years of their salary. They get health care for, for life. They get a pension and you can stack pensions. That's the other thing. Being a teacher, you only work nine months out of the year. So you could get another uh, union job for the summer and get a pension on that too. I know people who have two or three pensions coming in. They're making more in retirement than they were in any year when they were ever actually ever working. And government workers, unionized government workers are making more than private than their private sector counterparts that actually have to pay for all of this government unionized labor. They're making a ton more, especially when you take into account all the benefits that they get. If you take their benefits and their salary, they're making so much more than people in the private sector. It's ridiculous to expect that all of these people in the private sector who are making less, who don't have the same sort of benefits package, are going to foot the bill for everything. 
even FDR was against government unions. Like there's just no plausible reason for these things to exist. But I want to address a lot of the propaganda you hear on Labor Day. And I pulled up a couple tweets that just came through my feed. Of course, Bernie Sanders, famous advocate for labor, even though when his campaign staff organized against him and formed a union, he he was bad-mouthing them to the media. They were trying to fight for 15. All these things that he talks about, he actually never delivered on to his workers. He was paying them less than the minimum wage. He wasn't giving them health care. He wasn't giving them any of these things. And when they organized against him and they tried to form a union, he, he berated them in the national media. Oh, he's such a phony baloney. But anyway, his tweet today was, This Labor Day, we celebrate workers and the tireless work of the trade union movement for equal rights and economic justice. Together, we will continue the fight to expand workers' rights and build an economy based on human needs, not greed. Okay, so he didn't actually get into any of the the lies of Labor Day in that tweet, but there's a couple of things in there that I I want to address. So he talks about the trade union movement for equal rights and economic justice. Okay, and the whole movement is not about equal rights. It's about unfairly giving an advantage to labor unions over the employer, over non-unionized labor. And economic justice, I mean, justice is a word that doesn't need a modifier before it. You know, social justice, economic justice. There's just justice, okay? There's no such thing as economic justice, right? What you do in an economy Any dollar that you make is the byproduct of the value that you create. The only injustice in the economy is when you have interference in the free market, which we have a lot of. We have a central bank. We have a government that that produces tens of thousands of pages of legislation that interfere in the economy with, um, you know, not only labor laws, but licensing laws and things like that and just red tape regulations to you know any roadblock that they put up to stopping you from pursuing what you want to economically is an economic injustice i guess you could say but the the free market in and of itself if it's just a bunch of people acting in their own self-interest there's no injustice there all right and everybody would have equal rights under the law but what the government seeks to do and what the left seeks to do in particular is grant special privileges to certain groups of people, make it illegal for other people to work under certain circumstances unless they join the union, even if they don't want to, they're forced to if they want to work in that industry. And then in typical fashion, what they call economic justice is everything that they do is actually an injustice. They're, they're, uh, they're screwing certain people over at the expense of others. And then he talks about expanding workers' rights, and building an economy based on human needs. Now, like I said, you don't get special rights just because you're a worker. Like, I don't even know what does that mean, a worker. Everybody works, or at least most people work, right? Even the entrepreneur is a worker. So you don't get special rights just because you decided to work for somebody. You don't have different rights between workers and employees, Okay, and nobody's rights should be dependent upon what type of job that you take. Okay, and building an economy. This is another thing that socialists love to talk about. Politicians, socialists in particular, think that they always have to be in charge and building something as if one person or one group of people know what humans need, all these humans, and they know how to build an economy off of that, which is just impossible. Nobody can know what the economy needs better than all of the people, 330 million people, all pursuing their own self-interest. That is the way that you satisfy the most human needs for the least amount of economic resources. But the economy doesn't need to be built, okay? Uh, We don't need somebody with a bullhorn barking out orders telling us where to build that building or where to put that factory or how many, you know, pairs of shoes that we need and how many cars we need. No, you, you just, you let the market work that out. It doesn't need to be built. You just need to let people pursue liberty, okay? And human needs will be met because in a free market, the only way that you can achieve 
everything that you want is by providing a, a service or some sort of value or solving the problems of other people. That's the only way that you can get what you want. That's the beauty of free market capitalism. And Bernie Sanders loves to talk about greed. He loves to demonize greedy people. I mean, look, nobody is more greedy than a, a blood-sucking politician, for starters. But the beautiful thing, like I just talked about with free market capitalism is no matter how greedy you are, the only way that you can satisfy your greed is by satisfying the human needs of others. That is not the case with politicians, with politics, with the state, with, um, you know, public control of the means of production or however you want to define the exact opposite of free market capitalism, this crony capitalism, this uh, totalitarianism state or whatever, whatever you have. It's not going to be a greed is rewarded. Politicians who are greedy get rewarded for their greed. And they don't have to necessarily fulfill anybody's needs or provide any value to anybody. They just get to take stuff by force. And then, of course, we have Kamala Harris, the vice president on the Democrat ticket, claiming that this is the um, this is the most famous claim that you get on Labor Day. This is what they teach you in schools, government-run schools. This is the, the the height of propaganda around Labor Day is that strong unions built the American middle class. Everything from the 40-hour work week to paid leave was because of workers who organized and fought. And when Joe Biden and I are in the White House, advancing workers' rights will be a priority. Okay. Now, it always amazes me how many people just repeat this line, like a, a lemming or like an NPC. They gave us, they built the middle class. They gave us the 40-hour work week. They gave us the weekend. And it's just so obviously untrue if you just think about it, like think it through. And if you have, like I mentioned at the top of the show, an understanding of how wealth is created, why, why do we have to work only 40 hours a week? right? Why, why aren't we working 24 hours a day, seven days a week to survive? Because if all it took to create the weekend or to build the middle class was strong labor unions, and what they mean by strong labor unions is unfair advantages for labor unions by government decree. So the government passes legislation that give them a bargaining advantage over the employers, right? They get to, I mean, think of the the way that labor unions historically fought for these rights. You know, they, they boycott the business. They can stand in front of it with a, a huge crowd and a picket signs and they can uh, bully people that try to go in and work. They can beat them up. They can uh, intimidate people, all, all kinds of negotiating tactics that would be illegal in any other you know arena are somehow, uh, you know, uh, we, we just let it go when it comes to labor unions. But if all that had to happen to give us the weekend or to give us a middle class was to pass some legislation, it would be easy why wouldn't everybody do this? The same thing with like the minimum wage and just poverty in general. All these politicians love to take credit for the advancements that the free market actually does. And then they like to blame the free market for all of the uh, uh, socialist or political failures that they pursue. But it would be easy. I mean, there would never be any poverty. There would never like why why not give us four or five six? I want six days off. I only want to work one day a week. Why do I have to work five? Can't you just give us a give us like a, a eight hour work week? Just pass the legislation. What? Why not? Well, the answer is obvious because we have to be able to produce things to maintain a standard of living. How do you create wealth? Wealth comes from saving and investment. You invest in, in capital and in plant and equipment, right? The, the capital is just a fancy word for the tools that you use to produce things, right? Machinery, things like that, okay? Now, if you were to take away all of our tools, everything, we had nothing but our bare hands to provide for ourselves, right? Imagine what kind of standard of living you would have. Okay, and imagine how long it would take to achieve that standard of living. The, the episode I did a, a year ago, I think I mentioned uh, as an analogy, I used that show Naked and Afraid, where they just drop uh, two people off in the, the wilderness naked with like one or two items. They actually give them a couple tools and they have to survive for three weeks. Well, imagine if you didn't have any tools, how long it would take to build a shelter, what kind of shelter you would have, you know, how long it would take to catch something to eat. It would take you all day to accomplish the, the most uh, menial task that you could imagine, picking some berries or something like that to eat, to, you know, to eat 
for the day with, with you know, gathering water without a bucket or anything like that. So if that's the scenario you're living under and some politician comes along and says, hey, I'm going to give you two days off every week without increasing your productivity at all. It still takes you the same amount of time to produce everything. But now you have two less days a week to produce it. You can't afford to take those two days off. You'll starve to death. You'll die. In order for you to be able to take those two days off, you have to find a way to become more productive. The, the legislation, the political end of it, it has nothing to do with it. It's irrelevant, right? The, the only way that the politicians are able to pass legislation to give us the weekend, the 40-hour work week or whatever, or paid leave, is if we can become productive enough on our own to facilitate such a request. And the way we progressed, because that's the, the natural state of any human being, any animal on the planet is naked and afraid. You're, you're nothing, right? You have not, you're born into this world naked. You have nothing. So how did we get from that to me sitting in an air conditioned uh, high rise uh, condo building with computers and microphones and uh, you know, ovens and every, cable TV, internet, all this stuff, right? Well, people had to save and invest in, in plant and equipment to increase the worker's productivity, all right? Now, a worker with no tools, with no capital, is not very productive. If you had to dig a hole with just your bare hands, you're, you're not going to get very far, are you? And it's going to take you a really, really long time. Now, if I, the entrepreneur, come along and I save and invest in capital, and I provide you a shovel, well, all of a sudden, you can now dig a hole much faster, deeper than before. You can provide more value in the same amount of time than you could before, before I provided you with that capital. So you've, it, your productivity has increased. I can now afford to pay you more because you can do more for me. So what built the middle class was not strong unions and organized labor. Okay, what built the middle class was increased productivity, okay, that allowed organized labor or that allowed workers to produce more. Fewer workers could produce more in the same amount of time. And what, what allowed them to do that was entrepreneurs who came up with an idea, who envisioned something, you know, who, who uh, saved and invested and provided those workers with capital to increase their productivity so that they could command a higher wage and at the same time, they could produce more goods and services for the economy. That's what created the middle class. Labor Day should really be dedicated to the, the people that achieve that, to the entrepreneurs that were able to come up with an idea and see it through to fruition to allow the rest of us to become more productive so that we could all improve our standard of living. Organized labor, like workers banding together to, to demand higher wages or to demand a better work environment. You can demand all you want, but unless your productivity is commensurate with your wage, the, the employer is not going to be in business very long. That's why a lot of companies have, have gone bankrupt because of these unions having to having to pay these union workers more than their productivity yeah sure we had like you know real harsh work environments at the turn of the century and you can pass legislation to make that illegal or to make certain things mandatory in in the work environment and things like that but if those things were really important to workers competition just general market competition would end up providing those to workers in lieu of organized labor all right and maybe you know some workers might not want all of the the pomp and circumstance if it means that they have to take a lower wage. I'm drawing a blank on the name of the uh, on the study that I remember uh, reading about, but they've pulled people like in China that you hear all these like really oppressive work environments, India, places like that, where it's like, would you rather have an extra like dollar an hour or air conditioning in your, you know, work facility? And more often than not, th these people, they want the money. They they'd rather have the higher wage than some of these other things that uh, uh, labor unions are fighting for. And yes, in the private sector, workers could band together to demand better work conditions or something like that. You'd also have competition. And the employers who provide the best work environment for their employees will attract the, the best employees, the best and the brightest, and they will win out the competition battle with the other ones or the, you know, the employers that provide 
harsher working conditions, they would have to pay higher salaries in order to attract workers to their harsh environment over the more comfortable work environment that the other employers are offering. Labor is a finite resource. Companies have to compete for labor. And one of the ways that you compete for labor is, you know, if you can't pay the, the highest wages, you, you provide a better work environment, you know, maybe a better work life balance, something like that. But when you come down with with legislation, one size fits all legislation, you end up taking away options that people would otherwise have. Legislation does not give us anything. It just makes us less free if they could. Right. Why not make it a 10 hour work week? So we only have to work two five hour days. What's wrong with that? Well, uh, we wouldn't be we would be far less productive. Our standard of living would go down because our productivity hasn't increased to the point where we can take five days off every week. We can't do that. We would suffer losses. It just really bugs me when all of these politicians try to take credit for the free market. It's like there's a parade going down the street. And it's already got the the route going and they're already marching down the street. And then, you know, Kamala Harris and Joe Biden jump in front of it and pretend like they're leading that parade. No, no, no. You, they didn't do any of this. They, they deserve none of the credit. All of this stuff was brought about by free market competition, increased productivity, thanks to the entrepreneur providing capital and plant and equipment to workers to increase their productivity. These are all a function of free market capitalism and have nothing to do with government. So <laughs> those are my thoughts in a nutshell on Labor Day. Happy Labor Day, everybody. And I got to get into the Ask Me Anything portion of the show here because that was kind of a long little rant there. But before I do, let me take a second and thank our other awesome sponsor for today's show, and that is Photo IQ, which is the only digital photography online class of its kind. It provides lessons for the beginner and intermediate photographer for anyone 13 and older. If you have any interest in photography, you got to go check this site out. They provide semester length courses, graded quizzes, personal feedback. They'll help you develop a portfolio. It's going to be more in-depth than any photography class you're taking in high school or even at the college freshman level. It's perfect for distance learning. So go to photoiq.co, C as in cat, O. Use promo code FICTION. You'll get an additional 10% off the 20% off that he's already offering on all of his courses. So you'll get a combined 30% off as long as you buy the courses before October 1st. After that, I'll still be able to get you a discount, but that 20% offer is going to go away. So go to photoiq.co, use promo code FICTION for 30% off altogether with a 30-day money-back guarantee. You really have nothing to lose by trying this out. They offer courses from the very basic thing, just what kind of camera and how to use it, to anything from still life, shooting food, landscapes, uh, portraits, black and white, and action photos. Everything that you could possibly imagine, there's a course for here. You got to go check it out. PhotoIQ.co, promo code FICTION. Okay, let's take some questions from the private Facebook group, shall we? see how many of these I can get through. First one is from Riley. What are your short-term and big long-term goals or dreams for the podcast? And would you consider having guests on more frequently? I love debate type episodes. Well, my, my short-term goals, my short-term goals are focused on increasing listenership. I, I want to get up to sort of that next tier, you know, like the, the six to 10,000 listener range. That's probably my next target. And I, so I have a lot of um, ad campaigns that I'm looking to run. I'm, I'm in communication right now to, to run some more ads to try to attract more listeners. I do also want to put a video aspect into the show. So I would like to have something that you guys could actually watch like on YouTube I've sort of built out. I'm working on building out a studio here. Then I have to then I have to learn like video editing and things like that, which I'm starting to look into a little bit. So I guess that's sort of like a short to medium term goal for the show, which I think will help uh, also increase viewership and and sort of give the show credibility. If you can see my uh, smiling face twice a week, especially now that everybody's working from home. I think people are listening to fewer podcasts that don't have video. So I think that could be an important aspect to add. Long term, I would like this to become more than just a labor of love. I would like this to be 
one of the things that I do as a main uh, source of income. I would like to become a much bigger voice in the libertarian movement along the lines of, um, you know, a Tom Woods or a, a Dave Smith, you know, up there with those guys. Uh, getting on one of their shows as a guest or having them on this show as a guest would be incredible. I, I guess if you can put that into a, a big long term goal as well. In terms of having guests on more frequently, I, I would like to every once in a while have a guest on. I don't know if I enjoy the debate bait type episodes as much. That was sort of what uh, me and Johnny the Jew used to get into way back when we, when I first started the show. But I certainly think there's a there's a time and a place for that. If there's a topic or you know if there's a, an issue that comes up that I feel needs to be debated with somebody, I, I wouldn't mind having them on. I have also been mulling the idea of a co-host, getting a, another co-host to sort of have more of a sort of like a conversational thing going back and forth. I don't want it to become a debate every time. I would like it to be with somebody who's very, you know, liberty minded, sort of along the same lines as me that I can sort of bounce ideas off of or thoughts and get their perspective on it in case I, you know, miss something or uh, fail to bring up a point or, you know, don't I'm not looking at it from a certain angle. Something like that, I think, could add a lot of value to the show that I, I don't know if that's a short term or a long term goal or whatever, but it is something that I'm mulling over. And I think it would be it would make the show a little more fun than just me sitting here talking to myself. <laughs> and yeah, so I, I mean, I, I just want the show to become much bigger. My dream for the podcast would be to do this professionally as like my main source of income. I think that would be great. I think that if, if I could find a way to to get this show to to become as big as I, I think it can be, get more advertisers, get more revenue coming in, I think this could be an actual a viable business that would provide a lot of value to people and would provide the the type of lifestyle that I'm looking for. So that that's the dream. That that's the ultimate dream is to just have this become become my life, become a career. And maybe I would do it more often than just uh, twice a week or something like that. Should that dream come to fruition? Okay, let's see what else. Tim, who do you see as a great leader or president for the Libertarian Party for the next election? I'm getting tired of pandering candidates. The next election, I'm guessing you're you're looking past the 2020 to 2024. Um, you know, the, the problem is that none of the, the people that I would see as a great leader or a great president would ever consider being or running for president. You know, like I, I would love to see, as I'm sure a lot of you listeners out there, a Tom Woods on the ticket for president, something like that. A, a really principled libertarian who knows his stuff, who knows how to communicate, who, who knows how to brand libertarianism and convert people. Um, I, I, I agree that the pandering candidates, especially who they're pandering to, and I know, you know Dave Smith has been doing a lot of coverage on this, on the Libertarian Party, Jorgensen, and their, their tweets pandering to the left, pandering to social justice warriors and things like that. I pretty much just agree with him on all of these issues. I, I hate pandering to those type of people. I don't understand the strategy. I think it's detrimental to the movement. It's an exercise in futility. There's no reason to do it. It's a waste of time. Because the second you fall out of line with their thinking, the second you disagree with them on any issue, if you were with them on uh, you know, 90% of things, the, the 10% that you disagree with them on is going to make you Hitler. So I, I don't understand why anybody wastes time trying to reach those people when there's a big group of reasonable people out there who haven't heard the message or haven't heard the message presented in a way that's appealing. And that's what I want from a Libertarian Party candidate. Somebody who can who can deliver the message of liberty in a clear, concise, provocative way that differentiates libertarianism from the rest of the, the political spectrum, especially from Democrats and Republicans. A message that, that, that shows them that we are something different, that we are right about everything, that we're better Democrats than Democrats and we're better Republicans than Republicans. I haven't seen something like that from a Libertarian Party candidate since I really started following the party. Gary Johnson was just kind of a a buffoon who gave libertarians a, a really bad name. He made us look, you know, stupid, like stupid potheads. 
and, and he just came at it from a more like uh, it's more practical. It's more practical to to be a libertarian. Our solutions are more practical than these other solutions. And while that's true, it's not as compelling as like we're, we are more we have the moral high ground. We are morally correct and we are correct on every other level. And here's why. And the other thing is the Libertarian Party always nominates somebody who just doesn't even look electable. You, you look at some of these candidates or you know, they put up there. They don't like they're not charismatic. They don't look the part and then they can't really communicate the message. Their messaging is confusing. A lot of the times they don't hit the main points that I would like them to hit. And this kind of ties into a question that Justin asked about the libertarian platform as a whole and the Joe Jorgen, uh, Jorgensen ticket. Sort of my thoughts on that. I just I wish that they would hit the the big issues and message them in a way that that's going to red pill people. They always focus on these like little ancillary issues and their messaging misses the mark. Like talking about like transgender rights or something like that. That's all great when the topic comes up, but they should be focused on much bigger issues. The size of government, the spending of the government, the fact that, you know, the the two-party system has been destroying America for hundreds of years. The 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 wars, the longest wars in American history that have been going on and the Federal Reserve. I mean, th nobody talks about the Federal Reserve. I haven't I mean, I haven't been following the party that closely, but I haven't heard anything, anything near the level that we had with Ron Paul when it was people were chanting and the Fed. They need to have like one big issue that resonates with a lot of Americans. I don't know what that is for Joe Jorgensen. I don't know what her big thing is. She's kind of all over the place. Uh, you can come at it from just strictly anti-war. I'd be fine with that. If you came at it from like, listen, the Federal Reserve is, is the root of all evil. Let's go after that. And being able to communicate that message and deliver it in a way that's going to wake people up to and explain to them, explain a really boring topic but a really uh, important topic to them, clearly and concisely, that would be um, a breath of fresh air. And it, they always just seem to be afraid to take an unpopular position. And that really bugs me. I, I'd like them to stand on principle and make the argument and not sort of uh, kowtow to, to the social justice warriors or the mainstream. We're supposed to be something different. We're not supposed to be like Democrats or Republicans. We're supposed to be that third leg of the stool. And they're not doing a very good job of differentiating themselves from the two parties. So uh, I don't know. That being said, you know, Justin was wondering if I support the ticket. I I'm not going to vote. I, I don't vote. I haven't voted since I was 18. Um, so I don't know. I mean, I support it more than I do the Democrat or Republican ticket, but in general, they're, they're not my preferred ticket. Who I would rather see up there, I don't know. I mean, somebody, like I said, a Tom Woods, even like a, a Jason Stapleton or something like that, who's very good at, at messaging and branding and is liberty-minded and I think fairly principled, something like that would be would be very refreshing and would convert a lot of people. You know, the Libertarian Party seems to be focused on getting votes. They want to get more votes than the year before. If you're not converting people, these are just one-off protest votes because they don't like the other two-party candidates. They don't like Donald Trump. They don't like Joe Biden. So they're going to vote for Joe Jorgensen. Uh, oh, okay. But, but who cares? If they did like the Republican or the Democrat, then they would vote for the Republican or the Democrat. We need to convert people. We need to win hearts and minds. And I, I don't think Joe Jorgensen is the person to do that. And I think that approach in general is a losing approach, which is why the Libertarian Party is a laughing stock. Anyway, uh, do you see this is from Brandon. Do you see cryptocurrency helping to foster better free trade of goods and services? Do you have any personal favorite coins aside from Bitcoin and why? Well, I, I really don't actually. Um, I, I see the potential for cryptocurrencies to do that, to help foster better free trade. The problem is the government apparatus that we have in place. And until we get that under control or remove that, all the cryptocurrency in the world is not going to make a difference. The problem is that, you know, you can trade, you know, you could barter with people or trade online and things like that. But the second you go to like a store or something like that and you try, and you wanted to use bitcoin government can get you at the point of sale they have too much control over the economy 
So they won't let companies exist unless they follow their cryptocurrency legislation that they come up with. So they can, no, no matter what you do, once you get to that point of sale, the, the government can always come in and intervene. And I think that's going to present a big problem for a lot of cryptocurrencies. I do not have a, a favorite crypto coin. I do like the idea of a decentralized currency that, that does not have government interference, that does not have a central bank or something like that. I, I would like to see it backed by something tangible, something real, and instead of just being basically like a digital fiat currency. But yeah, I, I just I just think that the the way our government operates... They're, they're going to be able to crush anything that, that crypto could get going in, in terms of fostering better free trade and, and exchange of goods and services, um, unless you're talking about like black market type type things. So um, anyway, let's see what else we got here. Sean wants to know what I think the mental hazards of children being forced to wear face coverings and distance themselves from other people. Yeah, you know, I think it's going to be significant. We've already done a, a really bad job of raising kids this day and age, especially, you know, they're, everyone's glued to their cell phone or their computer or video games, things like that. They're already kind of socially retarded. But I find myself acting differently, like reacting to interactions with people or when you're just, you know, when you're approaching somebody on the street. I never know, like, how crazy they're going to be about about the mask or about social distancing or about the virus. And so... It's already affecting me, and I'm a grown man, so I can only imagine what it's doing to kids, and it, it can't be good. I mean, I would think it's going to destroy them socially. Um, you know, I was walking down the street the other day, and I saw some kids, and they were all standing in like a socially distanced circle outside with their masks on talking, and it's just, man, they're, and they're so young and susceptible to all the propaganda and things. This is... um. I think the ramifications of this could be pretty detrimental to society. And the damage we're doing to kids, it, it may not be re reversible. Like, I don't know how long this is going to go on. But to teach kids, you know, that that people are, like, dangerous, you shouldn't interact with them, make sure you, you have your mask on and make sure that they stay away from you, it's not a very good message for society. I mean, I'm no psychiatrist or anything like that, but... I got to imagine that it's doing a lot of damage mentally to children. All right. Brandon wants a fun question. And okay, so it's a, a Mary screw or kill. Nancy Pelosi, Hillary Clinton, Kamala Harris. Uh, Sean thinks that's a tough one. I, th I think it's pretty easy, actually. Uh, let's see. I would definitely marry Nancy Pelosi for a couple of reasons. One, she's old as dirt and she's about to die. She also has a vineyard. So I'd be hanging out on our vineyard drinking wine all day, waiting for her to die, which shouldn't be too much longer. I don't know how, you know, she, I know she's like living off the blood of, of infants, but how much longer she can survive on that? Uh, it can't be too much longer. Something bearable. I would kill Hillary Clinton. For the memes alone, just, I mean, that would be unbelievable to take out the most prolific hit woman of all time. That would be uh, fantastic for me. And Kamala Harris, I hear, gives a pretty good blowjob. So well, I would uh, I would fuck her. And I could see if there's any truth to that rumor. <laughs> That's pretty easy, no doubt about it. So there you go. Mary Screw or Kill. What are your thoughts on Lysander Spooner and Benjamin Tucker? Well, I'm not as familiar with... Benjamin Tucker's work as I am Lysander Spooner. I, I love Lysander Spooner. You, you know, people ask you if, if you could bring back, you know, somebody from the dead or whatever to have dinner with them. He might be on my list of people to, to talk to. To be an anarchist or an abolitionist during th those time periods, before they actually got to see just how out of control the government is. I mean, right now, it, it's a lot easier to be red-pilled than it was in like the late 1800s or something like that. And and these guys were doing it back then. I have nothing but the utmost respect for that sort of out-of-the-box thinking, going against the grain, taking a, a radical position that actually had severe consequences that day and age. is very respectable. Lysander Spooner did a lot of great stuff with the Constitution and arguments ag against slavery and things like that. So I, I respect the hell out of Lysander Spooner. Uh, Benjamin Tucker, you know, I haven't, read a lot of his stuff. 
I know he had a bunch of essays and things like that. I read some of it, but I think he was uh, an anarchist and a socialist. So I that that always um, seems contradictory to me. So I don't know. I'd have to look into him a little more to develop thoughts worth having. But Lysander Spooner, I I really like. They both have great beards, though. So I guess you could say I I respect their uh, facial hair as well. Do you see a way of peaceably dissolving the United States? Yeah, sure. I I do. I think, you know, we it just it comes down to a matter of secession. One of the, the good things to come out of the Trump presidency is it opened a lot of Democrats up to the idea of seceding. California in particular has been threatening to do that. You know, people want to avoid conflict. Nobody wants to have a civil war or something like that. So, yeah, I I think it is possible. Just like getting out of any any bad relationship, you can do that without it turning into uh, like a horrible fight or something. Like you can part on good terms. It's going to take the the right person at at the helm, the right president who respects. The idea of secession is not going to go all Abe Lincoln on everybody. But yeah, I've been I've been saying for a while that the the United States, it just doesn't make sense anymore. It's clearly a failed experiment and we need to break up. It's like a bad marriage. And the only peaceable way of, of getting out of it, in my mind, is is the idea of secession. Uh, people just walking away from this thing. How likely that is, I don't know. I think things would have to get really bad here in order for an actual secession to take place. Like the the uh, the worst economic uh, depression you've ever seen, maybe some out of control inflation, things like that that would that have really destroyed nations before. I think that would have to be the catalyst for it. Uh, okay, Roy, do you think Mexico has more freedom than the U.S.? Yeah, you know I actually do. Um, at least in terms of sort of your the daily life of the average person. I've been going to Mexico for about 12 years now. I've been down there for a couple months at a time. And just the things that you do every day, there's there's more freedom. There, there's less regulation. The beach is a great example. You can do whatever you want on the beach. You know, you can bring down a little grill and you can grill up your fish right there on the beach. You can fish on the beach. You can have your dog off the leash on the beach. Whatever you want to do, you can kind of do it as long as you're not hurting other people. Um, just go ahead and, and have fun. You could walk around with like a, a solo cup of booze. You know, every time I got into an Uber to take me downtown, I just had a, you know, a cup of whiskey with me. You're drinking in their car and then I, I bring it into the restaurant. They don't care. Fishing is another great example. When I was fishing in Florida, they have a guy that works for the government that that comes in and checks to make sure that you didn't um, catch any fish you weren't supposed to, that you didn't keep too many fish. You know, you're only allowed a certain number of th- this fish and it can only be like a certain length if it's under that length you got to throw it back all all kinds of uh, crazy regulations and stuff around fishing none of that exists in mexico i did feel more free down there than i do here and i i don't know in terms of like operating a business a lot of like the the labor laws and things like that are are more lackadaisical than the u.s they certainly have less regulation than us less means of enforcing that regulation but yeah i mean you can open up a food stand or something like right on the side of the street i'm sure you don't have to go down to city hall to pull a permit or something like that so yeah there's there's definitely a lot more individual freedom out there at least it seems to be than than in the US. So yeah, I think it might actually have more freedom. I don't know. Certainly in your in your day-to-day life or just walking down the street, it, I feel more free there. But that's also I mean Mexico's a big country, so I, it probably depends on where you are. If there's a big cartel presence there, you know, there's a lot of gang violence and things like that. That can be very oppressive. All right. Corey wants to know my thoughts on the current voting process and the thought of mail-in voting. Yeah, you know, I touched on this on a previous podcast. The the idea of mail-in voting, to me, seems fraught with disaster. I, I see way too many potential problems. For one thing, you have the, the post office has an incentive. They're, they're a union. They, I'm sure they lean left. That They don't seem to like Donald Trump very much. So they have an incentive right there to not deliver 
Republican votes or, for, you know, the mail from Republican precincts or whatever. We, we've all seen those, those articles or those pictures of mailmen just dumping mail in the forest or something like that because they didn't feel like delivering it. And then there's the whole the whole thing about, you know, fraud and, and how many you know people can mail stuff. I think, you know, the, the government is so incompetent that there's so much potential to get things wrong. Just think of how crazy and how convoluted the process of going about and getting all the votes tallied and everything like that and how many opportunities opportunities there are to to screw it up or to mess with the process. And I think we are going to have a lot of issues with this coming election because neither side is going to accept the results due to all of these potential problems. It doesn't matter who wins. If Joe Biden wins, there aren't going to be any Republicans that didn't think that this was, you know, rigged in favor of the Democrats because, you know, of all these mail-in ballots and voter fraud and, and you know, non-U.S. citizens voting and things like that. And if Donald Trump wins, obviously, you know, they, they did something to screw with the, the mail-in voting and they're not counting all these votes. And it's going to be uh, very difficult to, to get a duly elected president this time around. And I, I think no matter what happens, the current voting process is going to really cast a shadow on whoever wins the, the presidency. And it's going to have to go to like the Supreme Court or something like that. It's just going to be disputed nonstop and no matter what happens what you know half the country is not is not going to consider the president legitimate and it should it should get people to question this whole thing this whole government apparatus this whole process of voting but it's not going to it's just going to have them dig in to their corners even more so than they already are that seems to be the outcome of all of this stuff is it, instead of red pilling people they just get, take a bigger blue pill and, and dig in further all right, I think I might have time for a couple more. Autumn wants to know, in an anarcho-capitalist society, how would we hold companies accountable for particular misdeeds? Because let's be honest, human nature is human nature. It's going to happen. For example, let's say a large company is dumping pollutants from one of its plants into the Atlantic Ocean. What would the ramifications for the actions look like in this scenario in a sovereign ANCAP nation? How would you hold these individual companies accountable for destroying something as precious as marine life? Or another question from an ANCAP man's perspective, who do you think is one of the most positive and influential political women of all time and why? Okay, well, there's a lot there. So your first question is a pretty common question that anarchists get. You know, how are you going to hold people accountable when they break the law? First off, I think a lot of the problems that, that people have envisioning an anarcho-capitalist society and, and answers to these types of questions is that they always look at it in like a vacuum where it's like everything else in society is kind of the same. And then here we have this problem, right? Com uh, company is dumping pollutants into the Atlantic Ocean. But you can't really address that problem in, in a vacuum. You have to take into consideration that all of society is an ANCAP society right now, right? So right now, the Atlantic Ocean is just it's just the Atlantic Ocean. Nobody owns it or anything. In an anarcho-capitalist society, that would be a, a private property, and so it's a it's a private property issue. And all all rights are property rights. And if this company is dumping pollutants in into your property, and you, and you can show damages, that right there makes it much easier to deal with just right off the bat because you have a party uh, other than the marine life that's being harmed, right? Uh, it's kind of hard for a fish to sue a company. But a person who, who owned a portion of the Atlantic Ocean or a river or anything like that, I would imagine that, and I'm sure, I mean, you know, there have been volumes of, of books written on, on this subject, you know, people theorizing. I'll go ahead and just say, I, you know, I don't know for sure. That's sort of the whole point is that no, no one person or group of people can know how society would organize itself if left to their own devices. But one thing that I think would be a very useful tool that we are not currently taking full advantage of is insurance. And if I owned a portion of the Atlantic Ocean, I would have that insured, just like I have my house insured, my car insured, things like that. I would imagine that there would be very specialized insurance companies that deal with just you know, water or something like that, you know, deal with the ocean or the Atlantic Ocean, very specialized insurance companies. And that company would, would clearly have insurance. There, there's a tendency to worry that, you know, one person can't take on 
a big, you know, billion dollar, multi-billion dollar company in the court system. Well, again, you know, you, you can't take it in a vacuum. We wouldn't have the court system that we have now under government monopoly in an anarcho-capitalist society. So the whole court system would look different. It wouldn't be nearly as expensive. And, you know, you wouldn't have all these um, these rules that, that benefit the lawyers and just bleed people dry. So that's one aspect of it. But then the insurance companies would get involved with each other and, and they can have it out in, in court. And it, it's much easier for the insurance companies to battle each other and to foot that bill than it would be a, an individual. And one of the, the good things that would come out of that is the, the insurance company that's insuring the, the, the company that's polluting the ocean. They have an incentive to make sure that the, the company is not polluting anything or doing anything illegal because they're going to have to pay out if they do. So you have you have more, you have more than one um, group of people. You have, you have several people that have an interest in them not polluting the ocean, whereas right now when nobody owns the ocean, you, you kind of get the tragedy of the commons. And it's much harder to to pursue legal action or anything like that. It's basically just the government comes down with a fine for the company. And, you know, these companies can lobby the government. They can pay these fines until they're they're blue in the face. And then all that money just goes to the government. Right. And they get to take that money and use it for all sorts of horrible things. You know, like bombing democracy into everywhere in the Middle East. That's that's what they're doing with all these fines they're collecting because somebody is destroying the ocean or something like that. Whereas in an ANCAP society, that money would go right back to the you know the damaged party, and they could use it to mitigate the damage that's being done. Maybe depollute the water or whatever, or get some more um, wildlife in there, something like that. So I, I think. Um, there are definitely a, a number of ways to hold uh, companies and parties accountable for breaking the law, and I think insurance would play a, a much bigger role in an ANCAP society. And I know that there are certain things that just money can't replace. There, there are certain things that can be damaged that you just can't fix with a dollar amount. But, I mean, that's, you know, you kind of have to look at how we handle it now versus how you would handle it in an ANCAP society. And and money is going to be a part of it either way. But I think the more, uh, the easier you make it to show that one party is damaged and the more incentives that you have for people to keep an eye on companies like this, where you have like the insurance company that would be interested in it, uh, your insurance company that would be interested in it, then you have the whole, you know, public. Companies don't want a reputation for polluting the environment. You know, think think of what happened with British Petroleum when they had the, the big oil, the BP oil spill and, and the whole campaign that they went on to sort of repair their reputation after that. This day and age, especially with all the technology that we have, it's a lot easier to really punish companies for bad behavior. And I think that would also play a, a nice role in an ANCAP society. Um, as far as your second question goes, the most positive and influential political woman of all time and why? Hmm. You know, I, I don't know. I, I haven't had a lot of female politicians or, or just political uh, thinkers or anything like that. It really influenced me. And, and that's kind of sad now that I think about it. I mean, you have like Ayn Rand. I don't know if, if that you know, if that qualifies as a political woman. But I, I haven't really been influenced by a lot of women politically. Libertarianism especially tends to be more male. Oh, that's another one of the, the goals that I have for this show. I, I'd like to get, I want to get more women involved in, in libertarianism. You know, right now I, I'm almost at about, I think our, our audience is about 10% women. I would like to get that up to 20%. And I think that would be phenomenal. And I, I do have to really, I got to talk to some more women about this because I'm not exactly sure the route to go. I have a couple ideas as to why women aren't as libertarian or as um, interested in libertarianism as men are in general. But anyway, yeah, sorry. I don't, I don't know who, who the, the most um, influential political woman of all time is. I'm going to have to think about that a little more because offhand, I'm not really coming up with anybody. And, and that's a shame. It really is. But what are my thoughts on immigration from Jack? You know, I, I don't have enough time to cover this. That's probably going to have to be for another episode. And last but not least, what is the libertarian perspective on pedophilia from Aja? 
Aja, is that the way I pronounce that? Who I think is Autumn's sister. Well, I think the libertarian perspective on pedophilia is that it's a violation of, of, of a human being. It's a violation of property rights, right? We all own our body. And to have an adult defile a, a young child is whew, one, of, one of the worst, most despicable violations I, I can think of. I don't know exactly what the age of consent should be or, you know, it's kind of an arbitrary thing that we have to agree on as a society. And different societies come up with different things. Like in Mexico, they're a lot more open to to younger, not like seven year olds, but like you know, like a fifteen year old girl or something can be involved with a much older man. That that seems to be more socially acceptable there. But yeah, I think the libertarian perspective on pedophilia should be that it's wrong and it's disgusting, and there is no place for it in society. There's just no way a, a child can understand what they're consenting to in, in those types of situations. They're, they're really being preyed upon. And I mean, it does a tremendous amount of damage to, to people mentally that this is all well documented. So, yeah, uh, pedophilia is going to be a no go from a libertarian perspective. And uh, I think that, that's we're, we're out of time, guys, and I'm basically out of questions as well. So that's uh, that's going to do it for the first uh, Ask Me Anything. And uh, we're going to put another Labor Day in the books. Do me a favor, guys, if you like today's show, share it with a friend and give me a five-star rating and review on iTunes. Follow me on Twitter at Pedal Fiction. And don't forget to support our sponsors who make this show possible. If you want to donate to the show directly, you can do that by going to pedalingfictionpodcast.com. And if you can do all that for me, I will be back on Thursday with a brand new episode for you. And until then, you guys know what to do. Just keep on pedal.